You are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. This episode of Rootbound is brought to you by succulents, the desert plants with the sexy name, succulents, surprisingly juicy. Hey everybody, Steve here, and welcome to another episode of Rootbound. When I was researching my plant for this episode, uh, this concept came up that I have mentioned in a few other episodes in passing, and it's one of those concepts where I kind of got it, but I didn't like really get it, and so I decided to to really try to get it uh, before I recorded the intro here, and I think I got closer, maybe not 100%, um, but anyway, that that topic is... C4 plants. No, it doesn't have anything to do with explosives. (laughs) C4 plants are plants that perform a slightly modified version of photosynthesis that is more efficient and better at retaining water than most other plants. You see, most other plants are what are called C3 plants. And so let me explain what C3 photosynthesis is, which will then let me talk about what C4 photosynthesis is. So, For C3 photosynthesis, let's talk about a little molecule called Rubisco. Do you remember that from high school biology class, Rubisco? It sounds like a cereal, but it's not. It actually stands for, I'm reading here from my computer, ribulose 1,5-biphosphate carboxylase oxygenase. (laughs) And this is the the enzyme that is primarily responsible for carbon fixation, so bringing that CO2 out of the air and turning it into carbon material in the plant. It's really important. That's how plants get bigger. That's how plants trap carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They use this molecule called Rubisco. And in this process, it's kind of complicated. I saw this really cool video in Khan Academy that explains it. I'll link in the show notes so you can see it better. There's like this cycle for how Rubisco works. And at the end of that cycle, there is a three-carbon chain molecule, which has a very long name. I will not, uh, I don't recall exactly what it is here, but you can see it later in the show notes. Um, But it's a three-carbon chain. And that's why it's called C3 photosynthesis. However, Rubisco has a little bit of an efficiency problem because what the plant really wants is for CO2 to fuse with Rubisco, then this uh, chemical reaction occurs and it's able to capture that carbon and do other stuff with it. However, Rubisco can also bond with oxygen in the atmosphere. And when Rubisco bonds with oxygen, Basically, the whole cycle happens, but it, the plant doesn't really get anything out of it. And so the, the plant has to kind of eject those molecules and kind of start over. And that makes the process of photosynthesis not entirely efficient. So that's where C4 plants come in. C4 plants have evolved this interesting mechanism, which definitely watch the video I'm going to share in the show notes because it's kind of complicated. But the, the end result is they're able to avoid oxygen binding to Rubisco in that process. And that makes the photosynthesis more efficient. And also because they're not having to keep their stomas open so long to bring in more CO2, they are more water efficient as well because not as much water escapes out through the stoma, the little holes in the leaves. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, That's what C4 photosynthesis is. And just to name a few of like the rock star C4 plants out there that most people know, a lot of them are weird grasses that 
people haven't heard of, but there's a few ones that everyone's heard of. One is papyrus, you know, the plant that, you know, was used to make the, the OG paper. Uh, also, uh, sugarcane is a C4 plant, and probably the most famous C4 plant of them all, corn. I hope you really have a corn-tastic day. A corn-tastic day? It's just a pun about cone. Hi, Jill. Welcome to Rootbound. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Just before we get started, uh, this is we are f- recording this remotely. You are in another place. <laughs> However, I am setting the stage because there is a thunderstorm happening at the moment. And so, audience, if you hear any loud booms, I'm totally okay. <laughs> it's just thunder in the background. If all of a sudden there's a weird edit, it's because the power cut off and we have to start again at some other time. Hopefully that won't happen, crossing my fingers. But yes, Jill, do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. Uh, So it's actually a genus, and it is the ficus. Oh, great. Wonderful. I I only know recently that, that, uh, well, I won't spoil it for the (laughs) listeners, but I kind of thought that ficus was like a single kind of plant. It wasn't a genus until very recently. So anyway, let's talk about ficus. I'm very excited. Great. I hope that's allowed that I did a whole genus. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, great. Uh, we've we've gone even broader than that before. We did mangroves once, which is an higher higher category of plants. Wow, so. cool. All right. Yeah. Well, I can give uh, the brief overview of ficus. Is uh, it is a genus? But of a, first, oh, sorry. But but first, why did you choose ficus? Why oh. is it? Why is ficus meaningful to you? Sure. Okay, I was going to delve into that next, but I'll do it now. Uh, The reason it's meaningful is twofold. Um, One, it was actually my very first houseplant when I was a kid. I, uh, I, you know, I've always loved animals forever, as long as I can remember. And um, when I grew up, our home was filled with a bunch of fake plants because my mom was a terrible green thumb. And I hated (laughs) them. I thought they were tacky and they were dusty and I just thought they were ugly. And so I decided, uh, I don't know what age, probably 12 or so, that I wanted to have my own plants. And my first plant was a ficus benjamin, which I can go into a little detail on shortly. Um, and I just fell in love with, with growing plants. I thought it was so neat that you can actually like watch them grow and you know they change like, almost daily or weekly. Um, and nurturing something and, and seeing it do well and, and taking care of it. And I just thought that was really cool. And so that's Uh, one reason I love them. And the second reason is um, where I live now, San Diego. One of my very favorite uh, spots in San Diego is in Balboa Park. There's this huge, huge fig tree. Um, And it is uh, pretty famous in the park. And it's just a really cool landmark. And every time a visitor comes to see me, I have to take them there and show off the tree. (laughs) Very good. So now you said something here, which I think you're going to get into. But you said ficus, and for me, I always thought ficus is a house plant, and then like a, a fig is 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 something different. But apparently, that's not the case. Yeah, so ficus covers all fig trees, but it also covers kind of what you wouldn't call a fig tree, but still fits into the ficus family. Um, plants that don't produce fig fruit as we know it, but they're still under the ficus umbrella. Ah, uh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> so. So that tree in in. In Balboa Park, does it have uh, fruit? That's a really good point. I think it does, but I don't think it's the edible kind that we're used to. Okay. Um, that one is called a Morton Bay fig tree is the actual species, um, which is an, a mouthful. I don't know why it's called Morton Bay. I, I should have looked. <laughs> 
but <laughs> but they're really cool and they grow huge and I can get into them a little bit more too. Yeah, please. All right. Well, let's let's get into the fun facts and dazzling details. Uh, yes, please. Great. Okay. Uh, so it is a genus of about 850 species, and it's woody trees, oh, wow. shrubs, vines, epiphytes. Have you gone over this word? It's a. Um, Are those the? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> ones that like grow on like um, like other plants uh-huh. or like stuff like that. They don't have. They're like air plants. Correct. I guess, right? Yeah. So it covers them too. Nice. And there's a new word I learned called a hemi epiphyte which is a plant that Hmm. starts as an epiphyte and then eventually becomes a more root-bound plant, which is pretty cool. Doing the name of the show there. Good job. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That was accidental, but I'm going to pretend. (laughs) Nice, nice. I I, I think, like, you know, I've seen some of those when I learned that word epiphyte. I think I was in... Uh, I think it was in Mexico and there was this one area where they were like growing everywhere, even on like power lines and stuff, you see these plants. Huh. And so I imagine maybe hemi, a hemi epiphyte at some point just falls down. Yeah. <laughs> like, or maybe it's or like grow grows or something roots. Like that. Yeah. 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 So there's actually one, mm-hmm. I can, I can jump into one. Um, there's actually one uh, species of ficus called the strangler fig. And what it does is it starts mm-hmm. its life as an epiphyte. Like it attaches itself to maybe a, a limb on a tree that's alive and growing and not a ficus. Mm-hmm. And then it starts throwing down roots. It will actually, you can see these amazing pictures where these roots are start coming down from this epiphyte into the ground. And then it will also start wrapping its roots around the other tree and basically killing it. So it takes Whoa. over the tree and strangles it to death and it plants its own roots in its place. It's really crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, where do those grow? I don't know. Where- You're catching me off guard here. Oh, well. It's all right. It's okay. I, I always say there's a there's a there's a maxim we say on the show is that uh, the audience can Google it. Yes, that's a good <laughs> if, point. Uh, if we don't know, yes, um, yeah. So I yeah, Google Google strangler fig if you're interested. They are pretty crazy strangler and fig. really that's cool. Super cool. Um, but let's go into some more general facts of ficus if you're if you're good with that. Yeah, please. So uh, the one, the one that I grew up with, uh, Ficus benjamina, also known as the weeping fig, um, that one is native to Asia and Australia, and it's the official tree of Bangkok. Um, mm. And when I was doing a little research on it, uh, the really interesting thing I found out. So, so it's a pretty common houseplant, and it's really tolerant and easy to grow, which is why it's, it makes such a good houseplant. But I love that the Wikipedia page says it has been shown to effectively remove gaseous formaldehyde from indoor air. <laughs> mm. No, good. That's good. Yeah. So that's a bright, nice benefit. Um, <laughs> indeed. If indeed. you've got that problem in your home. Yeah. Uh, so more generally about ficus, um, they are known as fig trees or figs also. Uh, they are native throughout the tropics with a few species extending into the semi-warm temperate zone. And the common fig is a temperate species native to Southwest Asia and the Mediterranean region. And that is the one that's been wildly cultivated, widely, not wildly, um, cultivated (laughs) uh, for the fruit. So that's what we're used to when we say we eat figs. It comes from this common fig tree. I see. Is it, what is the the species name of that? I have that. It is uh, Ficus carica. Carissa, Carica. Carica. Ah, I okay. don't know what that means, um, but that is that's okay. That's yeah. the guy that we're all cool. familiar with, I think. Um, and then yeah, that's very interesting. I, 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 uh, 
I keep saying, I keep telling Carla, my wife, every year that I'm going to plant a fig tree because I really do. I want a fig tree, and I think I, sh- I think I should. There's a neighbor that has one that's that every time I walk by, I should go there soon because they're probably getting ripe. Mm. I take a few because yeah. it hangs over the fence. Yep. But <laughs> I, I want one. But yeah, as it, but there are, but there are a few that are pretty cold hardy and can and survive through winter, even though they're like I guess I think they've just been selectively bred over time. Yeah. To like live further north there's one that that you can get is called the chicago hardy fig because apparently oh. it can actually grow as far north as chicago that's so cool i didn't know that one yeah, yeah. I, I love anyway figs. that's my that's my fig fact that's the one that i know and i like i like the fruit and uh, uh yeah i do too that's a fig fact um so this is pretty cool about the fruit specifically did you know the whole um not symbiotic i think it's co-evolution with the wasps do you know about this i I, this rings a bell, but please explain in detail because I think it's really weird from what I remember. Very weird. So for the longest time, scientists were really confused by fig trees, the ones that produce the fruit, because they didn't see any flowers. And as you know, most of the time, the, the fruit or vegetable, it's like the flower blooms, it pollinates, it kind of crumples up, and that's what becomes the fruit or the vegetable, if I'm getting that right from right. what you know. Um, and yeah, And yeah. they never saw any blooms. And they were like how is it reproducing without a flower? Turns out the flower is inside the fruit. Um, So what happens is it just Mm. produces the fruit and there's this tiny little opening in the bottom and basically it doesn't look like a flower inside. It looks like, you know, the beginnings of a fig, but that's technically the flower. And there's this tiny little opening on the bottom of the fig. And the crazy fascinating thing to me is that I, I, what I was reading, I, I can't, you know, I'm not a scientist expert on this, but apparently every single fig species has its own wasp. And this wasp has to find these specific figs that, that it has this co-evolution with. And the female will crawl inside an unripe fig and lay her eggs. And then the newborns hatch and they mate apparently right away. And then... And okay. then the males will chew a tunnel out of the fig and die. And then the females will fly out and find another fig and lay her eggs. So it's this crazy Whoa. cycle of, of, you know, and, and they, I, what I was reading, these fig wasps basically have a lifespan of 48 hours. So it's like they, they hatch, breed, escape the fig, find a new one, lay eggs, die. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, man, bugs have some weird life cycles. That is that is really And so when the amazing. when the baby wow. hatches in this fig that the its mother laid its eggs in, it has the fig's pollen and then it finds its own and pollinates that fig. So it's this crazy like Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. That raises a bunch of questions, which you may not have the answer to. Probably not. <laughs> That's okay. The audience can Google it. I'm just going to talk about it now. So, so when you have figs in a place like where they're not native to, does that mean that the fig wasps traveled along with the fig, and so now those fig wasps, yeah, like live around here? Like how to how like the, my neighbor's fig tree? Yeah, how I have no idea. Pollinated? I would guess so because you think of how many figs are on a tree at any given time. When it's ripe, like if you did move it, there would have to be some eggs in one of the figs. Yeah. But I have no idea. <laughs> that is super fascinating. I'm going to read some more about that. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I guess I, I guess by the time the fruit is ripe, there's little chance of there being yeah. 
wasps in your so, face? So they were saying, one of the articles, I was trying to find this because I know people who learn this fact are freaked out that they're eating dead wasps. Apparently what I was reading is it's the male fruit figs that are doing this breeding cycle, but the female fruit figs are the ones we eat. So apparently the ones the wasps oh. are crawling in are not the ones we eat. I just, I don't really understand it, but that's what I was reading. Yeah, I have to look that more because you think that at least the, the one, they would still need to be pollinated, right? Right. So I, I don't get it. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Well, well, well I might, I might uh, put some extra in the show notes about that if I find out some more. But that is super fascinating. I just Googled fig wasps and <laughs> looking at all these pictures of all these different little wasps yeah. uh, and, and figs. Very interesting. Apparently they're super that's tiny, the kind too. kind of stuff creeps you out, audience, don't. Yeah, yeah, they do look really small. <laughs> that kind of stuff freaks you out, audience, don't Google it because it's a lot of little tiny wasps covering fruit. <laughs> yeah, and then it does say, I saw one note that was like, don't worry, no. Don't worry, though. Not only are the wasps itsy bitsy, but by the time you're cutting up a fig to put in your morning yogurt, the bug has been at least mostly broken down by an enzyme called ficane. And and this was saying the oh. one if if you happen to get a wasp in one of your fruits, it's probably been broken down. So there's a specific enzyme that breaks hmm. down the wasps. <laughs> cool. That's that's nice. Some extra protein in your Exactly. Fig. <laughs> um, some more interesting facts. The there is evidence to suggest yeah. that the fig tree was the first plant in Europe to be bred and cultivated for agricultural purposes more than eleven thousand years ago. Oh. Wow, that's really fascinating. That was pretty cool. Um, yeah. And then uh, there is a specific kind of fig called the banyan tree or Ficus bengalensis uh, that can resemble. That rings a bell. Yeah. That name banyan tree rings a bell. Okay. What, what is that? Um, let me, I, I, I need to Google a picture of it. But the thing about them, maybe this is why you, you know about it. The thing about them is they often resemble an entire forest because of the way they grow. So it's a single, a single plant technically, but um, they have false trunks and aerial roots. And they, they do the thing where they kind of drop roots and spread and grow. And the largest yeah. one on record is in India and it spans more than four acres. But it's technically a single wow. plant. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, and and I think I remember. Uh, I think isn't that isn't a, the banyan tree the tree that the Buddha sits under? Yes, I think that's like the classic. Yes. Uh, yeah, I was actually just about okay. to touch on that. Um, <laughs> good timing. Oh, great, great. That I was like, that's I was like, that rings a bell. So, yeah. Yep. Um, figs and fig trees have played a prominent role in almost every major religion. And you just touched on Buddhism. Uh, the the famous Buddha sat at the foot of a Bodhi tree. I think is that the same as a no? It's actually a different tree. Bodhi tree. Oh, okay. Oh darn. Sorry. <laughs> Which is oh, uh, no, well. Ficus religiosa is the name of it. Oh, uh, oh, wow. And that's where he is said to have gained spiritual enlightenment. Uh, Very interesting. And then also uh, religious prominence. Um, the common fig tree is cited in the Bible, uh, Genesis 3-7, where Adam and Eve cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Right, classic. Yep. And in Hinduism, um, I don't know how to say it, sadhus, monks who are abstinent from worldly pleasures. Uh, they meditate uh -huh. under fig trees as they believe they hold spiritual significance 
And when they chant, I'm not going to try to pretend I can say the chant. It translates to salutation mm-hmm. to the king of trees. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. That's amazing. So uh, that's kind of the basics overview. Um, I did have uh, a little bit more to elaborate on when it comes to that, um, my favorite spot in Balboa Park. I'd love to give yeah, a little please. history there. Yeah, let's get into it. Great. Uh, so that plant, like I said before, is um, it's it's a it's one tree of the species that is the Moreton Bay fig tree, and these trees generally tend to be really large. And there's if you Google that kind of tree, um, you'll see tons of examples of of really big ones uh, throughout the country. Um, this guy was planted as a small tree in the garden of um, Balboa Park in 1915. Uh, so it's quite old, over 100. Wow. And it was planted. I thought this was kind of cool. It was planted because of the Panama, California Exposition, which was an event that was held between January 1st, 1915 and January 1st, 1917. And it was to celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal, which is kind of neat. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they were, uh, they were trying to push San Diego because they wanted it to be the first port of call for ships traveling north north from from Panama. So they were trying to kind of, uh, you know, get attention and say, hey, you should stop here. <laughs> more more like um more like marketing these days should be done by planting a tree. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And the yeah. thing is still going. And um yeah. Yeah, they, I'm looking at a picture of it. It's now. so cool. It's really awesome. Wow. Uh, the, it officially oh it was it was last officially measured in nineteen ninety six. And at that time, it was measured at uh, 78 feet high with a crown that is 123 feet and a trunk girth of 40 and a half feet. (laughs) So this thing is unbelievable. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, I guess they said that back in the day, people used to be able to climb into it and climb the tree itself and climb all over the roots. And of course, as people do, it started to kind of damage the tree. Uh, so they did fence it yeah. off so you can no longer go up to it. Um, but they did build this really cool seating viewing platform, which is right in front of the tree. And it has these benches and and it's just really peaceful. And you can just sit there and read a book and it's it's beautiful. So that's, like I said, one of my favorite spots. The host tree's fate is now sealed for it is in the clutches of a strangler fig. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing about the entire genus of ficus. <laughs> uh, do you mind if I share a plant with you? I would love to hear it. All right. So this one, I, I kind of like this. What I like about this podcast is you can start with something kind of basic. And I ended up going on quite a journey here. And I kind of <laughs> going to go a little off topic, but it, ha- it has this thread. And it starts with just a simple weed that grows in lawns. Hmm. You've probably seen it. It's everywhere. You might not know what it is because we tend to ignore those. But basically, I was mowing the lawn the other day and I was like, I should know what all these different kinds of grass are in my lawn and the weeds. And so I use this little app I use called Seek, which I think you've I seen it. before. It's like, yes. A, you can like, yeah, it's a great app. And I, I pointed out this one that had like this tufts of grass, but then it had these long, longer ones that had these little seed heads coming out. Um, and it was called the Dallas grass, which is D-A-L-L-I-S oh, grass. Oh. And you've probably seen it. It it grows in these clumps. So it kind of looks like just normal kind of thick grass blades. 
but it kind of looks like there's a clump of it together and and like if you have a lot of it they're never going to be like homogeneous they're going to be in these separate clumps Hmm. and they uh they kind of rise up a little bit and like they have this really thick underground rhizome network so like they can be pretty tough i guess to pull out um they're 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 uh, from native to Argentina and Uruguay and kind of in like the the grasslands area of South America, but they're kind of widely spread throughout the world. Pretty uh, commonly regarded to be invasive, um, mm-hmm. but you know that's where it's kind of interesting. Of like, I was thinking about what is the definition of invasive, <laughs> and like this is a plant that is is from this hemisphere and and has a lot of I guess natural travel north. It's a grass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and when I was trying to read about like, well, what's so bad about it? Um, the main thing people say is that it makes your lawn look ugly, <laughs> which is like it's one of those weeds that people who like perfect lawns hate. Uh-huh. But those the grass species in those perfect lawns are not native here either. Exactly. They're like so. <laughs> you know. And then the other thing people say is that it makes sports fields like uneven and like uh... like you can trip over it because the way they build a clump. But <laughs> anyway, um, that that's that's uh that's why people don't like it. Um, from, from what I, it was either accidental or on purpose, but the reason why it's, I think, well known in the United States, um, and elsewhere is that it is a very highly regarded forage plant for pasture animals. Oh. And it's named Dallas grass comes from some guy named AT Dallas, who was like a big fan of it for like pasturing <laughs> animals in, in Louisiana. And he, he either brought it in specifically or started cultivating it because it grows really fast. It has a lot of like what animals need. Um, and it's very drought resistant. Mm. Um, and it's also a C4 plant, which this is something I'm, I'm going to have to do. A, <laughs> uh, something I'm, maybe I'm going to do at the beginning of the show. Audience, you may have already heard me explain C4 plants. Cause maybe I'll do that at the beginning of the show. Um, I've mentioned this before on the corn episode, a C4 plant is a specific, uh, it's a kind of plant. Only 5% of plants are C4 plants, mm. and they have a slightly different style of photosynthesis that's actually more efficient. Oh, wow. And so they can actually they can actually fix carbon faster. Um, they are better in drier areas, and so that's why people love it for, like, growing in pastures for animals because it, it's uh, much more resilient, yeah. which is really interesting. That's cool. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um so this now we're gonna get in the rabbit hole. I was <laughs> I was googling. I I like looking up the names, the other names of plants and what they're mm-hmm. called, um, and also like talking about the the scientific name. By the way, the scientific name of this is Paspalum dilatatum. Oh, that's a great it's name. It's not super interesting. It kind of, yeah, it sounds <laughs> interesting, but it, Paspalum means like means like uh, grass or something, and dilatatum means like long. It's not super. <laughs> it's not super interesting. But when I was looking at other names. Um, I found the names in Spanish because I was like, well, what's the deal with this? That, that's the thing. It's like, if you Google Dallas grass, you just find about it. Google's just like invasive weed, invasive weed. You can't find any other information about invasive weed. But it does say it's from Argentina and Uruguay and those areas down there. And so I was like, well, let me see what it's called in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can learn a little bit more about this plant because of that. And I was looking at all the common names and this one name that popped out, which was Pasto Miel. Do you know what Miel means in Spanish? I don't. It means honey. Pasto means grass. And miel means honey. And I was like, I'm a beekeeper, as you know. Uh-huh. And that stood out to me. And I was like, why Why is this called pasto miel? 
like it, I've seen it in my yard. It, it it doesn't have flowers that bees visit. It's like this little like it's almost like a wheat grain. It, it has like some some people call another name is caterpillar grass because the seed head is kind of like this long. It looks like a little caterpillar kind of sticking out horizontally with the seed black huh. seeds kind of dangle on it. Yeah, but it doesn't have any like nectar that I can tell. It's more in this like wheat family. And I was trying to Google that and I couldn't find it. So I had to like uh, get Carla's help, who's a native Spanish speaker, to try to do some <laughs> Googling in Spanish. And there's like this really interesting, I think, epistemological thing about the internet of like, if you can only search in one language, you really do limit what you can learn. Yes. Um, and so uh, I did finally f- uh, uh, come to this like document that was called the Plants and Plants of the Natural Grasslands of the Southern Cone of South America from the Alianza <laughs> de Pastizal. And that's the Alliance of Grasslands. Um, and I found this, I was reading about it. I Googled in there. I found this whole page about Pasto Miel. And I'm going to say this in Spanish. I'm going to do my best. Uh, Spanish speakers out there, uh, don't uh, get, well, it's going to be bad. But anyway, this is because I, I understood this and I'm going to say it in Spanish and then I'll translate I was just reading, and then it said, Se llama pasto miel por la secreción en sus semillas al, al ser atacadas por el hongo claviceps paspali. And that in English means it is called uh, honey grass because of the secretion of its seeds after the attack from the mushroom claviceps paspali whoa i was like oh that's super interesting what is what is claviceps paspali so i searched for claviceps paspali and it turns out that um well one thing about the grass is that this mushroom can affect animals that graze it so that's one negative side of it if the animals eat an infected grass it can give them what is called stutters where they can like fall over and like convulse um and that's because claviceps is the genus of the fungus that is more commonly known as ergot. Okay. Are you familiar no, with ergot? I'm not. Ergot is really fascinating, and and this is uh, this is ergot is more known. Um, there's famous incidents of a disease called ergotism in like the Middle Ages, when when entire villages would be poisoned. Oh my from Eating bad bread made from rye that is infected by this, this fungus. Wow. And, it, and there's two kinds of ergotism. One is called uh, gangrenous ergotism, where it can basically oh. kind of like make your like, you get gangrene in the extremities and stuff. That's horrible. And there's one that's called convulsive gangrene uh, ergotism, which like makes you like, like freak out and, and like shake and like behave really strangely. Um, um, and in fact, some people theorize that ergotism explains the strange behaviors around the Salem witch trials. Oh, and wow. that it was actually an outbreak of convulsive ergotism that was making these women behave strangely and freak, you know, freak out and convulse. That's and crazy. there's been some other, uh, there was apparently a similar incident in Norway. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So I was like, I was like, cause, and I knew a little bit about ergot, ergot and ergotism, but I never heard about it in like, uh, you know, a South American context. I've only heard about it in this European context. So I was really fascinated about this. Uh, so, a little bit more about... So can I ask a question then? So so the article is yeah, saying please. that when this kind of fungus attacks this grass, it what was the honey part? It produces a substance? It secretes this uh, this substance, this sweet substance. And that's what's super fascinating. The, the life cycle of the claviceps 
fungus at one point early in its life cycle, it secretes this stuff that is called honeydew, and it's a sweet, sticky liquid that insects go to collect, and then they spread the fungus from plant to plant because this this honeydew is filled with spores. And so... That's like a horror movie. So, <laughs> totally, totally, um, and that's how that's how it, it spreads all over, and in, in including uh, the, on Dallas grass in its native range, and also uh, everywhere Dallas grass grows. It, it's like this. Um, a couple more really interesting things about ergotism before we get back mm-hmm. to Dallas grass and we wrap up. Uh, the the reason why like eating ergot infected grains is is bad is because ergot uh, ergot or you know claviceps fungus also known as ergot fungus creates a ton of different alkaloid chemicals um, and many of those are just toxic but some of them um, are also beneficial and have been used in various medicines. I'll put a link. I forget all the different things that they can treat, but they've mm. been able to isolate certain alkaloids from this mushroom. And, uh, are, you know, it's not the mushroom like you think of. It's a, it's a fungus that invades, invades a grain. But they've been turned into commercial drugs. The most, I think maybe the f- most um, well-known or the, the first one I ever heard about, this is going back years ago, was a, I heard about this that, uh, alkaloids from uh, ergot Mm -hmm. have been used for a long time as as treatments for postpartum bleeding and have actually been developed into commercial drugs now for that. Whoa. But the reason I know that is because a scientist who was doing experiments on uh, these different alkaloids from ergot, trying to look for better and better drugs to treat postpartum bleeding, uh, that scientist's name was Albert Hoffman, and in the process, he accidentally discovered LSD. No way. <laughs> LSD is also, or at least, it's an enhanced version of an ergot alkaloid. And so some of like the hallucinogens or the crazy ways people behave when ha- they're infected with ergot- ergotism mm-hmm. is related to that. But LSD is just a, uh, it is a like tweaked version of a natural compound that apparently is just even more extreme on the hallucinogenic side, but doesn't have as many of like the, the toxic properties. Well, yeah, but anyway, and that's that, not he even... discovered that while, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He discovered that while trying to find a drug to, uh, to treat postpartum bleeding by studying alkaloids coming from ergotism. That's crazy. Yeah. And I was going to say, that's not even yeah. the only like hallucinogenic mushroom. Clearly there's more than one. Yeah. That's y- so they just yeah, they just sure. took one and like enhanced it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ba- basically, it's like the the molecules just tweaked slightly. He was trying all these different v- variations to synthesize different variations of very similar molecules, and one of them like uh, really like wow. uh, that story. Is, I don't need to go into that story. It's a very fascinating <laughs> story of when he was riding his bike home and kept falling off his bike and didn't know what the hell was going on. Oh no! On. You know, he accidentally like yeah, he accidentally um, uh, had the first acid trip and didn't know about it. <laughs> Um, but that's that's probably you know wait you know I've, I've gone I've gone a, down a pretty deep rabbit hole uh, about that I could talk more about that story which is interesting because it's he's a Swiss a scientist and he actually went to the same university Carlo went to in Switzerland so anyway it, that that so anyway that's that but getting back to Dallas grass yes I found this you know this is where like trying to figure out more details about how this grass works and mm-hmm. and and it's possible that it is actually called. It's, it's it, this one, a couple sources said it's called honey grass because it excretes this honey when it's infected. 
but it's possible it's also called uh, uh, honey grass because native bees in the area can make honey from it. Oh. And I've only found one reference to this, and it's in one one um, book. And there maybe there's one other source, but this is one of those things where I, I think I've exhausted the English language sources of this. Um, but I'm just going to read this because I thought it was really interesting. Um, it's from the Encyclopedia of Psychoactive Plants, <laughs> Ethnopharmacology, and its Applications. And it says, in Paraguay, these grasses are apparently often infested with Claviceps paspali. As a result, a sweet secretion, honeydew, forms on the spikes and is consumed by wasps and bees. Bees that have visited these grasses inoculate their honey with this secretion. In the language of the Maka Indians, the resulting honey is called fique and, in, and is recognizable by its pungent aroma. Consumption of large amounts is dangerous for it can produce dizziness, headaches, and drunkenness. It is said that it can be lethal. The honey is used to brew beer or meat. Oh Certainly a, a, a beverage with potent effects. And then it goes on to say there's a grass called Eleonurus muticus that is used to make an antidote for poisoning from drinks made from honey. Now, whether whether that was always accidental or whether that, uh, you know, the, this group of people have a practice of making mead specifically out of honey infected by this for, for its, you know, various properties um, is unclear. And I would really like to learn more about that, but I, I really couldn't dig any anymore. Uh, but I thought that was super fascinating. Um, and all from just this little weed that grows in my yard. And it sounds like it doesn't hurt the bee in the process, hopefully. <laughs> no, I don't think the bees care. Like the bees collect, you know, the, the honey and they, you know, they, they're fine, I guess. I don't know. Maybe there's some some psychedelic bees out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the black outgrowths on this head of rye are the sclerotia of ergot, claviceps purpurea. The sclerotia, from the Greek skleros, hard, occur on many grain crops and grasses. They contain a group of alkaloids, of which ergotamine, specific in the treatment of migraine, and ergometrine, of great value in obstetrics, are now the most widely used. At least as early as the 16th century, Midwives in Europe used ergot to speed labor and control postpartum hemorrhage. But there are two sides to the ergot story. On the one hand, there is its value in therapeutics. On the other, its poisonous nature. For centuries, the European peasant has used rye in his bread. And rye is particularly susceptible to the fungus. Frugal in habit, ignorant of the dangers, the impoverished peasant often neglected to remove the ergot from the rye. So the fungus, milled with the flour, found its way into the bread. In popular tradition, records abound of the sufferings of people, especially the poor, of fiery burning pains along the limbs, mutilations from gangrene, delirium, convulsions, hallucinations, and in many cases, death. That clip was from a documentary called Ergot, the story of a parasitic fungus from 1958. Very interesting. There will be a link in the show notes. After speaking with Jill, I was reading up a little bit more about figs. And when I was Googling, this quote from The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath kept coming up over and over again. And I thought it was a really interesting and poignant quote. And so to end the show, I thought I would leave you with that Quote from the bell jar. I saw my life branching out before me, like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, 
a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children, and another fig was a famous poet, and another fig was a brilliant professor, and another fig was E.G., the amazing editor, and another fig was Europe and Africa and South America, and another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions. And another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion. And beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest. And, as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Jill Harris. Jill is an environmentalist, beer fan, and she knows, like, more about animals than anyone I've ever met. Rootbound is hosted by the person whose voice you are listening to at this very moment, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. You know, Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. But if you can go outside, enjoy some figs as long as they are currently wasp-free. Succulents. Surprisingly juicy.